ask you to open your Bibles to uh, James chapter 2. We're continuing in our study of James. James chapter 2 today, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 17. Uh, but before we, we jump into our scripture text, I want to just share with you a story that happened to me about two weeks ago. Uh, two weeks ago, I went to give blood, that glorious wonderful experience I think we all have at some time, right? And um, while I was sitting in the office there, uh, it was me, another gentleman, and, uh, and another woman there, an elderly woman. And uh, she began um, trying to witness to the other gentleman that was in the room. Now, first I want to say what I'm going to share with you is not a criticism, it's it's not a condemnation. I think her efforts and her intent were honorable. I think some of the execution was a little bit flawed. Um, but anyway, it kind of fits in with what we're going to talk about today. So she began by saying, well, do you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins? He died on the cross. As a matter of fact, that's a fact. That's a historical fact. Well, the gentleman that she was speaking to was, uh, he was a Muslim and he had, he, he wasn't fluent in English, you could tell, he was struggling with it. So he was looking at her with a great deal of perplexity, like, oh no, Jesus? Yeah, he said, you know, I'm a Muslim and, you know, we don't, we don't worship Jesus. And, and she went on to, you know, when she heard that, she was kind of taken back and, and he said, well, you know, Jesus was the son of God. Jesus was born of Mary. Do you believe that? And he was really struggling with what she was saying. And she started kind of blurting out different facts. You know, uh, well, you know, we, we, we have the Trinity. You know what that's about? And, and we have the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that's about? And you could really tell that this man was really struggling. I mean, I think he was picking up the gist of what she was saying. Um, and then I heard those those uh, blessed words that were Mark. And I said, okay, I'm next, I'm out of here. <laughs> it may sound funny, but for the past week, I've been asking myself, what if that person said yes to the facts that she mentioned about Christ? Would that indeed result in true salvation? And I think the word of God is crystal clear that salvation isn't just merely acknowledging a certain amount of facts about Christ, a certain amount of historical facts about Christ. That saving faith goes so much further than that. And I, I, I lament because I know that on that great day, that there is going to be a multitude of people who are going to find themselves on the wrong side of eternity, but yet agreed to all of the facts concerning Jesus Christ. Many today, many today profess a belief in Jesus Christ, but they do not obey, nor do they follow Christ. Listen, the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 21, he said, many, many shall in that day say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? We do not do that. 
And the Lord's response is, depart from me. As a matter of fact, in 721, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. In this next section of James chapter 2, James is going to show us the difference between genuine saving faith and the mere profession of faith. And we're going to talk a lot about this. He'll show us the relationship between faith and works so that we will know what saving faith looks like. I've said this from the very beginning. The whole epistle of James is about faith and James sets forth various tests so that the believers would know what true saving faith would look like. Now, I personally believe, this is my personal belief, but I personally believe this is one of the most critical concepts. This is one of the most critical doctrines in all of the Bible. This is essential. Absolutely essential. What could be more important than knowing what the Scripture says about living an active faith, biblical faith, faith in Christ, faith that saves? So my encouragement is that we would be people that would have ears to hear what the Spirit would have to say to us regarding this very, very significant, significant passage of Scripture. Now, in the second half of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, I outline it as follows. James deals with, first, a mere profession, a mere profession of faith. We see that in verse 14, and we're going to look at that today. James then talks about what is Dead faith, dead faith, in verses 15 to 17. And then he goes on to talk about a a worksless faith. Does that have the ability to save? If faith are without works, is that true, genuine faith? In verses 18 to 20. And then lastly, James gives us an example of what saving faith looks like in verses 21 through 26. So take a look at your text, James 2.14. And the first, there's one of two applications that we're going to see today. Number one, James is going to make the point that a mere profession of faith, a mere profession of faith cannot save. And the second point he's going to make is faith without works is a dead faith. It's a dead faith. Look at James 2.14. Let's look at the first application. A profession of faith cannot save. James 2.14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? There it is. There's the question. Faith that isn't demonstrable. Faith that doesn't produce righteous works. 
Works that are honoring to God, works that are honoring to Christ, works that are consistent and in keeping with the word of God. If a person were to say, I have faith, but those things are missing from that life, can that faith save? Is that saving faith? You know, the modern gospel being preached across this nation today offers everything. It offers everything. But it costs nothing. Many preach and confess a, 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 a Christless, cost-free Christianity. We love to hear of God's forgiveness of sin. We love that. We got the ticket out of hell. God's forgiveness of sin. We love to hear about is the riches available. Oh my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. We talk about power. We talk about victory. We talk about that I am more than an overcomer through him who loves us so. And yet what do we see? We see a church that is growing increasingly, increasingly, increasingly weaker. Drawing further and further away from Christ. Professions that do not demonstrate the saving power of the gospel. James is going to make the point, and I do concur, is not genuine salvation. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, How is saving faith demonstrated? About 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, a little bit more, the gospel went from, hey, repent and turn from your sins and turn to Christ to make a decision for Christ. We took repentance and we put it on the shelf. And more and more you heard about make a decision, make a decision. It's time you make a decision for Christ. The gospel was treated as if it were any other decision that you have to make in life. And we heard not of the amazing work of of what God does. We forgot to talk about the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. We forgot to talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We forgot to mention the need for repentance and to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. We don't talk too much about sanctification and God making you holy. Salvation more and more became a decision, and that decision was to ensure that you weren't going to hell. When Jesus met Nicodemus, secretly by night in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, having seen that Jesus' works had to be from God, he said, you must be a prophet of God. No man can do those works that you do. What did Jesus say? Hey, if you don't want to go to hell, believe certain facts about me, He said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless a man be born again, unless he's born from above, unless it was a work of God that took place in his life, well, that is the thing that is going to change someone. That is the thing that will ensure salvation. How is saving faith demonstrated? 
Well, one of the ways that saving faith is demonstrated is through, through obedience to God's word, through righteous works, and a greater desire for God's presence in your life. In the Old Testament, in Malachi 1.6, the prophet rebukes Israel. And the prophet speaking for God says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised thee? Malachi was, was, was prophesying to Israel because Israel wasn't bringing the best and the choices for sacrifice. They were bringing leftovers and remnant. They were bringing animals that were defiled. They were bringing animals that were crippled. They were bringing animals, which was a sin against the law. And they were taking the attitude like, okay, this is what I got, Lord. Take it or leave it. I think about how that's so relative today. Of how many people go to church and, and church centers around their conveniences. And what they offer to God is, is minimal or they offer to God very little. Almost as if we're saying, okay, Lord, well, this is what I got. Take it or leave it. You hear the words of the Lord there? Where is my honor? I think about that today in the church. Where is my honor? Where's God's honor? Where's God's glory? For God to say to a people, say, where is my respect? We see this throughout the word of God. I mentioned to you Matthew 7, 21 and Luke 6, 46. Uh, 46 the Lord Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you do not do what I say. Romans 2.13. Paul makes the point, for it's not the hearers of the word of God that will be justified before God, but the doers of the word are the ones who are going to be justified. We saw a few weeks ago in James 1.22 where James tells the people, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word of God. Doers of the word, not merely hearers. And he says, those who hear, those who don't do, he says, they delude themselves. They deceive themselves into thinking that they're right when in actuality they're not right with God. As I search the scriptures, the first thing I want to establish today is, are there evidences, are there objective evidences for true saving faith? And I'm going to give you just a list of six. Six evidences of true saving faith. Number one, true saving faith is a faith that regenerates or transforms. Let me say that again. True saving faith is a faith that regenerates or transforms. It is not merely forgiveness of sin. 
but it frees one from being a slave of sin to becoming a slave of righteousness. Romans 6, 7 tells us, for he who has died, meaning in Christ, you've been buried with him in baptism, you've been raised in newness of life. He who has died is freed from sin. What are we freed from? The penalty and the power of sin, and one day we will be free from the presence of sin. So true saving faith is a faith that regenerates. You're born again. You're made new. That is not just a positional truth, meaning it's not just a doctrinal truth. It is a literal truth. A believer in Christ has been made new. Secondly, true saving faith sanctifies. It sets one apart unto God. And it sets them apart unto holiness. And the believer has a new desire for God. Man, if I could emphasize anything, I emphasize this. And this happened to me. I was sharing with Sunday school is the same conversation. But two weeks ago, I had this conversation, this very conversation with a dear, 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 dear friend of mine. And I made the point, it's not just merely being saved from hell. You don't get a punch card. You don't get a ticket on board the Heaven Express. That being saved in Christ, you're sanctified. You're set apart to God. God births in you new desires, holy desires, desires for Him. And I said, if I could say anything, and I say this again, that one of the most critical things that our Lord said is, Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. True saving faith births a hunger, births a thirst in you. Hunger and thirst, two of the most powerful physiological responses in the human body. And Jesus likens saving faith to the one who hungers and thirsts. If you hunger, you desire food. If you thirst, you desire water. If you hunger for Christ, you desire his righteousness. Ezekiel 36, 27, prophetically speaking of this for Israel, says, and I will put my spirit within you. Notice these words. I will put my spirit within you. You're saved. You're born again, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my commandments. Oh, that's sanctification. The Spirit of God sanctifies he causes us to be careful to obey the commandments of the Lord, to walk in His ways. True saving faith does that. And I'm sure you've had the experience as I have had the experience, and praise God, I can testify I have the experience in my personal life. The man I am today is not the man I was 30, 40 years ago. The man I am today, the desires I have in my heart today, the yearnings, listen, even my frustrations are based in Christ. God puts a 
sanctifies the true saving believer. The third one, true saving faith seeks to glorify God through works of righteousness that honor God. Oh, praise God. True saving faith seeks to glorify God. It is no longer I who live, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have, I have been crucified with Christ. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me and died for me. It is no longer me. My glory is irrelevant. Now, we're going to contend with this issue all of our lives as believers, there are going to be many times we think, as Jason prayed, and he prayed rightly, as Jason prayed, there are so many times we think we're doing God's will when in actuality we're not doing God's will, we may be doing our own will. We will contend with that. But the desire for self, the desire for all this self-satisfaction, self-esteem, self-promotion, self-righteousness, day by day is crucified with Christ so that the glory of Christ may be preeminent. Why does God save a sinner? Why? God saves a sinner, yes, because he loves him, but he saves a sinner to show the world, look at what I've done. You've had those experiences where you hear these great testimonies of people that come up, oh, I was a... I was a hit man and a drug dealer and all this other different stuff. I used to sit in church when they used to bring in these special speakers and used to listen to their testimonies. And boy, they brought in some people that had some past, man. And I used to sit up there as a teenager and as a young adult, and I go, man, but that's not my testimony. I'm not that bad. Maybe I should go out and become bad, and then this way I'll get saved and I'll have a great testimony and people will listen to me. What I didn't realize was I was bad. That we're all bad. We're all full of sin. That self is the thing that drives us. Good friend of my father's, Pastor Clarence Sexton. He's the head of Crown College in Tennessee made this great statement that stayed with me. He goes, there's something awful within human beings. He says, we want to be recognized. We want to be recognized. We want to be promoted. Why do we get so mad when somebody disappoints us? Why do we show so much righteous indignation? Why do we judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intent? Oh, I didn't mean to do that. But when the person wrongs you, go, look at that dirtbag. Look at what they did to me. Blah, 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 blah. True saving faith seeks to glorify God. And it does so through righteous works that God honors. Ephesians 2.10, love it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? 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 For good works. You know, 2.10 comes after 8.9, right? And 8.9 is, you know, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And we usually end it there. But grammatically and structurally, 10 is part of the same context. So 10 says, yeah, we're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. But we're his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself had ordained, God had determined, God had predetermined that we are to walk within those works. We do not have the license to say, I want to live anywhere I want. It's my life. I'll do as I please. Not only do we not have the right, but the Spirit of God, if he's alive in us, will continue to smooth that out and to bring us to a place where we seek to do the glory of God. The fourth item. True saving faith is an example of God's grace. But don't forget this. God's saving power. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul wrote, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the dunamis. And I know you've heard this many times. People say, oh, dunamis. That's the root word for the word dynamite. Well, we would call that a root word fallacy, meaning because it is the root word, it, it does not mean that dunamis means dynamite. Dunamis is God's enabling power. So he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is God's enabling power unto salvation. Therefore, believers in Christ seek to glorify God in all that they do. Paul said this to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6.2. He says, you have been brought with a price. And on Good Friday service, I preached on reconciliation and redemption, how we were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells the church here in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Glorify God in your bodies. Glorify God in your life. Glorify God with your words. Glorify God with your thoughts. Glorify God with your actions. Be sacrificial. Be self, don't be self-serving. Avail yourselves to others. Esteem others as better than yourselves. And here's the best part. Don't look for reciprocation. Don't look for reward. We've got to guard ourselves to say, well, I did this for this person. That person never did anything for me. You know what? If God compels you to do, do. End the story. Live your life in obedience to God. The fifth item. True saving faith has evidence of the indwelling and abiding Holy Spirit within the believer. Romans 8.14 says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. True saving faith gives evidence of that abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, that's just the beginning of the list. Let's stop right there. Does your life manifest 
the love, the joy, the peace of the Holy Spirit? Do you walk in harmony with God? Are there no coarse words proceeding from your lips? Is there enmity with another brother or sister that hasn't been laid down? Are you at peace, as Paul says in Romans, with all men? True saving faith gives evidence. It shows those fruits of the Holy Spirit. It gives evidence of the indwelling, binding Holy Spirit by righteous works. And by the way, I'm going to great pains right now to define what true faith looks like. So as we go through the rest of the text, you'll understand the relationship between faith and works. And the sixth one, and the last one. True saving faith gives evidence of Christ. Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27. Paul speaking, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but it now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the mystery? Paul tells us, The mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is true faith? In the final analysis, what what is true living, active faith? What is biblical saving faith? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. It's not simply acknowledging things. It's not acknowledging things that you might agree with the gospel, you might agree with the doctrine of Christ, you might agree with the doctrine of God. True saving faith is a transformed life. And that transformation, by the way, is from the inside out. It is the work of God. It is Christ in you the hope of glory you see that inside out perspective begins first with a new heart we're given a new heart a redeemed soul a new mind and that gets manifested outwardly in righteous deeds righteous works the previous life of unrighteousness The previous life that we used to live prior to being in Christ, guess what? That's done away with. You know that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. What happened to the life? What happened to the life of immorality? It's gone. It's not here. It's gone. What happened to the life of adultery? It's gone. What happened to the life of lies? It's gone. What happened to the life of drunkenness? It's gone. What happened to the life of of watching perverted things? It's gone. It's gone. 
If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. We have a lot of talk being done today that people can be in Christ and not be a new creation. And you know what that is? That's wrong. That's not biblical. People like hearing it because at the end result, right? Nobody wants to give up their sin. And so there's many people who may agree with certain facts about Jesus Christ. They may say a prayer. They may walk an aisle. They may sign a card. They may go through a discipleship program. They could even be in the church. And then we say, oh, they've grown cold. Oh, you know, he's backslidden. She's backslidden. And one month turns to a year. And a year turns to five. And five turns to ten. And then when tragedy comes in that person's life, they'll make a statement like, well, I was saved about ten years ago. And, you know, I, I, I said the sinner's prayer and, you know, I went through this. I, I was baptized. But there's no evidence. There's no fruit of righteousness. There's no fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus made this statement. He said, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. Now, I'm not the most educated person in the world. There's a lot of people that have a lot more letters following their name than I do. But that seems to be pretty unambiguous. When Jesus said, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. That seems to be pretty direct. When Jesus makes a statement and says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not the things that I, I say? True saving faith changes everything. It is the game changer. And God has saved every single believer, everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. He has saved every one of us so that his glory would be on display in the world. You may say, Pastor, I'm a housewife. Like, how do I show the glory of God? Or I'm not in an influential place. I get terrified to speak in public. Or I can't walk up to someone and say, Hey, do you want to know about Jesus? Each and every one of us have been saved by the enabling power of God to declare God's glory in a sinful and a wicked world. Listen, there is a very real danger to empty professions of faith. You hear me? There's a danger to that. Samuel Chadwick, great English preacher from the end of the 1800s to the early 1900s, wrote this quote that caught me. 
He says a religion of mere emotion and sensationalism is the most terrible of all curses that can come upon any people. Listen to these next words. The absence of reality is sad enough, but the aggravation of a pretense is a deadly sin. In other words, you don't manifest righteousness? That's bad. But you want to know what's worse? Pretending that you are in Christ. In James 2.14, James poses a question based on the thought that if a person makes a profession of faith, but he does not live that faith through righteous work, does that faith save him? That's the question that James is asking here in 2.14. And we're going to see that James' answer, by the way, is rather emphatic. James' answer is, no, a mere profession of faith cannot save. And he begins by saying, if a man says, and James is not saying that the person is saved, but he's referring to their, to their claim of salvation. That's what he's referring to. If a man says, and James establishes that we are dealing with just that. It's a profession. So what does the person in 2.14 say? Hey, I have faith. That's what they're saying. But notice James goes on to say, but has no works. Has no works. And that is the context. I have faith, but I'm devoid of works. How would we call that in our church? I'm a Christian. I'm saved. But there's no demonstration of righteousness in that person's life. And the question James asks is, can that faith save? The word save there is the Greek word sozo. Sozo means to deliver from imminent danger. That's what it means. Deliver from imminent danger. It's used principally of God rescuing believers from sin. That's the question. Can that faith Deliver the believer from sin. Does it have the ability? And this question, James already knows the answer to. And when Scripture speaks about salvation or being saved, it is this that Scripture is referring to. Deliverance from sin. Are you delivered from sin? Now, can I put a caveat out there? Because I know where people are going out there. And that's this. When people hear this, they go, but I still sin." Can we put out there, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about that you're going to walk your life and you're never, ever, ever going to sin. The difference is your life is not going to be characterized exclusively by sin. That's what we're talking about here. Romans 6, 6 says this about salvation. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The believer is no longer a slave to sin. Romans chapter 6 goes on and says that the believer becomes a slave of righteousness. Leonard Ravenhill makes this great statement. 
By the way, read the dead guys. Can I encourage you to do that? Read the dead guys. Read the guys that are gone and all we have are their books. Leonard Ravenhill says this, and this really resonated with me. There are three persons living in each of us. One is the one we think we are. The other, I'm sorry, the one is the one we think we are. The other is the one people think we are. And the third is the one that God knows we are. I looked at that and I said, here, that's interesting. The first person, the one we think we are, that's the intellectual. That's the mind, right? We think we are something. The second one, the one other people think we are, that's the perceptual. They look at us perceptually and they perceive us to be this. But the most fearful one is the third one. It's the one who God knows we are. And you know what that is? That's the truthful. That's the unvarnished truth. Listen, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, you don't even have to look it up. I pray that if you know anything about the Bible, you know this verse. For the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? Verse 10, for I, the Lord, know the heart. And I render to all men according to their deeds. Chilling. That's chilling. That God knows my heart. That God knows the secret things of my heart. That God knows the intentions, the motivations, the thoughts that I've had in private and the thoughts that I've had in secret. The story of my heart is similar to the story of your heart. And that story is this. It's not good. True faith in Jesus Christ transcends the believer from the intellectual. It transcends them from the intellectual belief. It transcends them from religious traditionalism and formalism. And it reaches the darkest heart. True faith in Jesus Christ brings about repentance and godly sorrow. What is repentance? An outward manifestation of an inward work of God. We have contrition over sin. We mourn over sin. When we step out of the will of God, we come back and we're repentant before God. True saving faith in Christ causes us to be born from heaven. And true saving faith seals us with the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know, if we really believed, if we really contemplated, if we really thought, if we were believers, that the, not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit lived within us, Physically, by the way which he does, we wouldn't do half the things we do. Because we would be so concerned about grieving the Holy Spirit and being convicted right in front of him. Let's talk about faith without works. 
verses 15 and 16. See if I could do this in less than eight minutes. Verse 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is without clothing and needed daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? To illustrate this issue of the relationship between faith without works, James uses an example, a hypothetical situation of a person that's in need, and this is a person in the church. It's a brother or a sister in the church. And the condition is genuine. The condition is visible. Everybody could see that this respective person has a need and that that need needs to be met. How is one's faith demonstrated? How is the redeeming power of God demonstrated? How is the enabling power of God demonstrated? This is what James is driving to. If, in, if instead of responding to a brother or sister in their need, we say to them, we wish them God's blessing. Hey, pray all's well. But we do not respond. How does that show the love of God? Listen, Isaiah the prophet, we read this in our scripture reading. Isaiah the prophet admonished Judah about their lack of concern for those who had needs while they went on fasting and worshiping God. And as we read in our scripture text this morning in Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7, listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. Is this not the fast which I choose? This is God speaking. To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now don't mix what I'm trying to say. This is not about moralism. There are many many altruistic, good-meaning people throughout the earth that, that feed the hungry and do the homeless. It's not about that. It's about living your faith, living an active faith. God has commanded us, especially in the church, to take care of one another. This is the point. And we see this in the New Testament as well. 1 John 3.12 says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods, listen to these words, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need, and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Simply put, living, abiding, active faith produces works of righteousness that glorify God and are keeping with our salvation. As a matter of fact, in verse 17, James says this. Going back now, he's referring to that illustration. James says this. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself. That word dead is the Greek word necros. You hear it when we say a person has a necrosis. That means their flesh is dying, right? There's 
There's irreversible death in the flesh. And it literally means that which lacks life. That which lacks life. So what is he saying here? He's saying if you don't have the evidences, if this is the consistency of your life, if nowhere in your life is the glory of God, nowhere are the evidences or the fruits of the Holy Spirit being demonstrated, then that kind of faith is a dead faith. And the sad thing is, over the last 70, 80 years, we've talked about a faith that says, if you pray this prayer, if you do this thing, you're in. That's it. As a matter of fact, some of the famous preachers have gone on to say, hey, you could, you could go and be a total atheist. As long as you said that prayer, you're in. You're in. You're saved. That's blasphemy. That's not the word of God. In verse 17, when James uses that term, even so your faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. If we look at it grammatically within the context, what he's really saying there is that faith is destitute of all force. It's void of force. It's like trying to jump a car with a dead battery. It's not going to work. James is specific that this dead faith goes back to his original premise in verse 14. Can that faith save? And his answer is an emphatic no. That's not saving faith. Now, we looked at two truths. One, a mere intellectual profession. And what I mean by that is agreeing to certain facts about Christ or agreeing to certain facts about the gospel in and of itself cannot save. Salvation is and will always be a supernatural work of God. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. The second principle we looked at is any faith that does not demonstrate good works, fruits of salvation, works that glorify God and testify to the new birth in Christ, that's a dead faith, a dead faith. Now, there is another danger that I have to point out, and we're going to see more about this next week, but this is another danger equally as bad. And that is this. And it pertains to the issue of faith and works. We talk about faith without works is a dead faith. Well, the opposite of that is equally bad. Works without faith are equally bad. There is no measure of good works that we could do as believers in Jesus Christ to earn the grace and favor of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, we're going to see as we go through the chapter that works and faith are together. They are balanced. Good works, religious works, not done in faith in Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? All of our filthy works, all of our works are as filthy rags before the Lord. All of our religious works. We cannot earn salvation through works alone. Titus 3 makes this very clear. 
Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the kindness of our Lord, the kindness of our God and Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God's grace saves the believer through faith. And it's faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. I was driving here this morning, and as is my custom every time I drive from home, I pray in the car. And as I was praying, I kept saying, Lord, what would I have done were it not for the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross? To what can I anchor my soul to? To whom can I come before repentance? What could wash away my sin? As the great hymn says, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. God's works, righteous works, are byproducts. They are fruit of true saving faith. It is evidence that when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he is my Savior, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord, well then the evidence is the righteous works shall flow forth from you. As we studied on our Bible study on Tuesday night, when we studied the parable of the talents, some may be given five talents and may go back and make five more. Some may be given two talents and will go back and make two more. But the one who receives one talent buries it in the ground. Is called a wicked servant and is... Cast out from the presence of God. So the question for us is simply this. Where are we in Christ? That's the question. And the question is, do we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness? Is Christ our greatest affection and our greatest joy? Do we live a life that desires to please him and Christ is preeminent in our lives and everything else is secondary? Or are we on the throne of our lives? Are we the king of our castle? Are we the captain of our soul and the master of our fate? Do I come first before I seek to please God? That's the question. Am I trusting in some statement I may have made when I was younger but has not affected my life at all? Am I a Christian because my mom and my dad are Christians and I was raised in the church? Or am I a believer in Christ because I've come to the cross in repentance and faith? No one, no one, no one will be saved 
apart from Christ. No one. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let me, let me, let me roll that back a little. No one will come to me because my mother, my father, my grandfather, sister, brother, uncles, aunts are all Christians. No one will come to the Father because I trusted in a particular church. No one will come to the Father because I said a prayer or I recited a mechanical process. No one will come to the Father because I have the Bible memorized from Genesis 1 till the end. You must come through the blood of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. And if you haven't done so, I beg you. I mean, I literally beg you. Will you stop trusting anything else that you've been trusting, whether it's that prayer, whether it's your mom and dad, whether it has been something in your past? And will you throw yourself completely and wholly upon the mercy of God and trust in his sacrifice that atones for sin. And cry out to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.